you for joining us today at Renovatus, a church for people under renovation. If you have a prayer need, would like to talk with a pastor, or want to share how this message impacts you, we would love to hear from you. Email us at info at renovatuschurch.com. If you desire to support us in the work we are doing for the kingdom of God in Charlotte, you can give online at renovatuschurch.com. We hope you are truly blessed by today's message. If you've got your Bibles, uh, we're going to go to Luke chapter 15. If not, we're going to have it on the screen. This is a uh, lectionary actually gives us a big chunk of Scripture today. It's a parable, one that if you spend any time in church or around church, you've probably heard at some point. Um, So it's going to take a little bit of time to work through the reading of the Scripture. I want to set your heart at ease this morning. I'm not going to spend as much time as it would take covering every verse of this passage. Uh, It is quite lengthy. So don't think that I'm going to like preach a two-hour sermon, although I might. Who knows? Um, No, that's not going to happen. Uh, Yeah, no. Don't egg me on. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So true. Um, yeah, oh, my. <laughs> let's not name drop. <laughs> All right. Let's, um, let's go to Luke 15. We're going to read the first three verses, and then we're going to jump down to verse 11. Okay? The first three verses are important, though, because they set the tone for the parable that we're going to read. Now, this parable is unique to Luke. The two parables that precede this parable are not unique to Luke. However, the challenge that causes Jesus to respond with these parables is unique to Luke. All right. So in other words, what we have in chapter 15 is something you're not going to find in any of the other synoptics. You will find a version of the lost coin and the lost sheep in Matthew, but it's not spoken as an answer to the same question as it is in Luke. All right? That's an important observation because Luke has an agenda in his retelling or in his sharing of the parables as Jesus told them in this instance. Okay, not to say Jesus, hey, listen, Jesus, you know, John reminded me the other week we were talking and if you've ever been an itinerant preacher, you know sometimes you preach the same sermons when you're traveling around. And so there's always the possibility Jesus told these parables in different places and different settings. But we do want to focus on on the, on the ones that Luke shares and the reasons that he might have shared those parables in the ways that he did. <clears throat> now, all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. Now, you may not think that's a big deal. So just replace tax collectors and sinners with whoever else you would think godly people aren't supposed to hang out with. All right? You've already got them in your head. You bunch of judgmental vipers, right? (laughs) We all do it. Fill in the blank. Who are those people with which you would rather not see godly people hanging out with? This is their problem. Jesus is hanging out with people, with tax collectors and sinners, people that we don't think someone claiming to be a representative of Yahweh or of God 
should be hanging out with. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and complaining, saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. And then he told them, notice this, this parable. Now what follows are three different stories. But Luke says it's one parable, and it is. Spoke to them this parable. Now let's jump down to verse 11. Then Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country, and there he squandered his property in dissolute living. Now, the father's given his inheritance to his son early. Believe it or not, this is not uncommon in wealthy Middle Eastern families in the first century. However, what is uncommon is for the son to leave. Generally, when a division of the inheritance happens before the father's death, the inheritance is divided and both sons, or ever how many sons is divided among, live with the father and use their inheritance as an investment to continue carrying on the family business, which is usually farming of some sort, some agricultural enterprise. So notice, it wasn't just the prodigal that got the inheritance. The inheritance was divided to both sons, but one of them left. And when he left, he spent everything in dissolute living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs, hence a Gentile. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough to spare? But here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against you and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And get the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they begin to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf, because he has got him back safe and sound. 
Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him. But he answered his father, Listen, for all these years I have been working like a slave for you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. I don't know if anyone here is like me, but nothing makes me angrier than losing something. All right. Anybody like that in here? Right. Like it drives me crazy. I think probably the only person that that it bothers more than me is my wife. And in particular, when it's something I've lost and then I ask her to help me find it. Uh, Because the way I organize is a whole lot different than the way she organizes. And the way place I put things is completely different than the way she would normally put things, right? And inevitably, when she finds something I've lost, she will say, well, I would have never put that there in the first place. Why did you put it there? Why? That's, no one would think of placing your wallet there on the spur of a moment. I hate losing things. Yet I am notorious for losing things. I have lost things due to my own negligence. And I have lost things for reasons that are out of my control, right? A good example of this actually happened at Carowinds last year. Um, I was wearing shorts, and apparently, um, ladies, you probably get this more than, than, than us guys do, but like sometimes it's a struggle when you're wearing shorts to keep a cell phone in the pocket. And I was riding the scrambler, and at some point the inertia like forced the the phone out of my shorts pocket and I didn't even know it had happened and we actually went all the way across the park I changed clothes for the water park and then realized my phone was nowhere to be found and I immediately start running through my mind like where is my phone at and if you've ever lost a phone it's more than a phone right like it's so much more than a phone and immediately I'm thinking about all the personal information I have on that phone, all the passwords I have saved on that phone, all the contact information, people's phone numbers that I haven't entered into my context, contacts yet. Their number just pops up and I have to go back three texts to remember who it is. I know you don't have anybody like that in your phone, but I do. Um, none of y'all, though, of course. Um, and I'm thinking about that. I'm thinking, how will I get these numbers back? And, like, my anxiety level was off the charts thinking about this thing that I had lost. If you've ever lost keys, you know what that's like, especially if you have to be somewhere and there's an appointment. Or if you can't find your wallet, which is like the biggest defense I have, I lose my wallet a lot. Um, It is little, by the way, so I have a reason to lose it. So don't, don't judge. There's like this great anxiety that comes from losing those things. I remember when I was at Carowinds, I lost my phone. I was like praying in the spirit on the way over to the scrambler. God, please let my phone be there when I get there. God, please. 
And the Lord was faithful and answered prayers, and it was there <laughs> when I got there. Uh, yes. Um, more recently, um, our family has experienced what I like to refer to as the great TV remote crisis of 2019. Yeah. <laughs> Somehow on the night of the Super Bowl, I lost the remote that controls my soundbar. And I'm like old school. I've got like five remotes. I haven't upgraded to a universal one yet. Another thing that frustrates people when I'm like, where's my remote? Well, if you had buy a universal remote. Um, so we lost that one on Super Bowl Sunday. And we have lived without that remote until yesterday when it was found. Your mom found it in the couch during spring cleaning. Yeah. Uh, so for over a month, um, we would have to get up off of the couch and change the volume. Right? One night in particular, we had just got settled down. We had our snacks, right? Like our popcorn and chocolate-covered raisins and all that good stuff. And um, we sat down to watch a show, and I turned it on. And, you know, it takes a minute sometimes for the sound bar to catch up with the TV. I was like, that's going to catch up. And then nothing. I was like, oh, man, the sound bar's not on. And I got up, and I went to the TV. I was like, man, I'm tired of living like it's 1950 in this house. <laughs> and I cut the sound on. First world problems, right? Um, but we did find it, thankfully. Uh, it was found. <laughs> See what I tell you? Salty, salty. Um, <laughs> but anyway, I think we can all relate to the feeling of things being lost and the joy we have when they're found. I mean, if, if I would have had a fatted calf, <laughs> I don't know exactly what you do with one, but I would have offered it up for finding the remote yesterday. In our text this morning, Jesus is challenged by the Pharisees who were concerned about the kind of people that the alleged Messiah was hanging out with. And rather than spending his time arguing with those who represent the religious establishment, Jesus chooses instead to tell three stories. Three stories which the Pharisees and others in his audience, just like us, stories that we all would have identified with. Because they were stories of things that were lost and then found. Now we talk about wallets and keys and TV remotes and phones. People in that day would have been concerned with similar things, but not in the same avenue. They would have been concerned with their sheep, their coins, and of course, just like us, their children. Hence, Jesus tells, us a, sto tells a story about the lost sheep. He tells a story about the lost coin. And then finally, he tells a story of the lost son. Now, these stories that Jesus tells are parables. Of course, what we have here in Luke is what Luke calls a parable. And parables can be tricky business to interpret, right? They can be tricky business. Um, in fact, if you were to go to any commentary, any uh, series of commentaries, you're going to find a lot of variations in the way that these parables are applied. Um, there's works out there that talk about what the parables would have meant to first century people living in impoverished Middle East. 
Uh, there are books out there that modernize the parables and make them relevant for today and extract more modern truths for them. Parables can be tricky business. Now, what you may not realize is that parables are actually based on, the structure of parables are actually based on a very ancient form of humor, a joke. And you may not think you're familiar with this joke, but you are. If you've ever heard a joke that starts like this, a priest, a rabbi, and a pastor walk into a bar. You've heard a joke that is based on a very ancient form of humor in the Greco-Roman world. Or maybe you've heard it in this way. Nancy Pelosi, Donald Trump, and a Boy Scout were in an airplane. Y'all really want the punchline for that one, don't you? Uh, we're not going to go there. This is a form of humor that is very ancient in which three instances or three individuals are named. They're put in a certain bizarre kind of context. And then the third person or the third instance is always the punchline, right? It's always the gotcha. The first two are just leading you up to the gotcha, right? Whether it's the priest and the rabbi and the pastor, whether it's Nancy Pelosi, Donald Trump, and a Boy Scout, it's the actions of that third person or that third instance that is the point of the story. Now, we see this in several parables. I'll highlight a couple of them just so you kind of get what I'm talking about here. Uh, are you familiar with the story of the talents? Right? So you have three servants. They're each given a certain number of talents. And it's the third servant and what he does with the talents that is the point of the story. That's one example. Another example would be the parable of the Good Samaritan. Right? You've, got the good, you've got someone who was beat up and left on the side of the road and then three individuals pass by, a priest, a Levite, and then a Samaritan, the Boy Scout the unexpected one in the story, comes along and is the point of the story. It's the punchline. The Samaritan is the punchline. You'll find this in several of the parables. They come in threes, right? There's these three individuals, and then boom, there's this third individual that's kind of the punchline to the story. Um, now, in these instances, this is a thing about parables and even the joke. In these instances, the joke means different things to the various people represented in the story. For instance, in the Good Samaritan story, when the audience that heard it heard it, the priest and the Levite would leave the joke with pie on their face. They were the ones who were shamed by the joke or by the story or by the parable. Whereas the Samaritan, who was often made fun of by the priest and the Levites, would be the hero of the story, of the parable, of the joke. This is true with the parables. When Jesus spoke parables, they were heard in different ways by the different groups that heard the parable. Uh, for some, the parable was liberating. For others, the parable was an indictment. For some, the parable made light of their situation, and for others, the parable empowered them and recognized them and, and showed them that God indeed knew what was happening in their life. The parables were heard differently. Um, depending on who was hearing them among the audience. So in Luke 15, we find the same form. We find these three instances. And that's why we don't want to think of them as three different parables. They are all one extended parable. The first two instances are leading up to the third one, which is the punchline. 
which is the kick in the gut one, if you will. Um, the story of the lost coin, lost sheep, the story of the lost coin, and then finally the story of the lost son, or we often hear it called the story of the prodigal son. And the prodigal son, that particular instance, is the point of the rest of them. Now, in the first two instances, and we're not going to read them, but if you want to just glance back, if you've got your Bibles open and you're taking notes, you can just glance back. In the first two instances in this story, we have individuals who lost something that they were trust, entrusted to keep. Okay, Sheep don't typically lose themselves. Now, sheep do wonder, but a good shepherd is able to lead his sheep. Sheep don't typically just lose themselves. They are under the trust of a shepherd, and they are lost when the shepherd doesn't do his job as negligent or something out of the shepherd's control causes the sheep to be lost. And silver coins do not lose themselves either. Silver coins are lost by someone who is entrusted with the coins. In each instance in these early stories, we have the loser of something going and looking for that which they have lost and finding it. And in each of those stories, when they find what they are looking for, they rejoice. They throw a party. They invite the town over even. Their neighbors come over and they throw a big party because they found that which was lost. And in each of those first two instances, when that thing is lost and found and then there's a party being thrown, Luke adds, Jesus adds commentary to it and tells his audience that this is what happens in heaven when sinners repent. I'll read it to you, actually, Jesus' words after each of these first two stories, respectively. In the story of the sheep, Jesus says, Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And then after the story of the lost coin, Jesus says, Just so, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Then we come to our reading today, the story of the lost son, or the prodigal son. I'll use those interchangeably. Now in this story, we have the story of, by the way, every person in these stories are rich people. Having a hundred sheep puts you in a whole different class than most of the hearers of these parables in the Middle East. Having that many silver coins, having a silver coin in general was a big deal. And this is also a very wealthy man. He has an inheritance that he can share. He shares it with his sons. The youngest son, who has asked for the splitting of the inheritance early, takes his inheritance, goes off into a distant land, spends it. It never says he spends it on prostitutes. The brother assumes that later on. Never actually says, it just says he spent it on riotous or dissolute living. He ends up working for a Gentile pig farmer and is so hungry he would have gladly eaten the pig food, but even that wasn't shared with him. And so he comes to his senses and says, I'm going to go back home because in my father's house, at least the slaves have leftover bread. They have leftovers for dinner. 
So I'm going to go back, and I'm just, this is going to be my argument. Dad, I know I messed up. Just let me come back and live as a slave. I'll do anything to have some of that good home cooking again. Just let me come back home. Of course, we know what happens. He returns home. The father runs out to meet him when he sees him from a far distance, throws a brand new robe on him, something expensive, puts a ring on his finger, pulls him into the house, and throws a party for him. Then, on the other side of that, we find the elder brother who is out in the field. He hatches, hears the volume of the partying going on, is curious as to what has happened, finds out that his father is throwing a big party for the lost son, and of course he gets salty. A lot of salty people in church this morning. Uh, he gets salty because he says, hey, I never got anything. I never, you've never even given me a goat. And this, this guy, your son, any parents in here do that about their children, by the way, right? Like when their children misbehave and they're all of a sudden the other spouse's kid. You're, you need to go talk to your child right now. Your son, who's went out and spent all your money with prostitutes, gets a fatted calf when he comes home. Now, there's a wealth of wisdom in this parable. That's what I said. I mean, we could go hours talking about the prodigal. I mean, there are books and books and books written on this parable. Um, one of my favorites, Henry Nowen's The Prodigal. If you haven't read that, it's a fantastic understanding of that story and how he interprets it and using art even to kind of give us visuals for what that is like. Uh, most recently, um, I read Amy Jill Levine's The Stories That Jesus Told. And she spends like 30 pages, like the biggest part of her book, just on the story of the prodigal son. But for our sermon this morning, what I want to do is I want to hone in on, these, uh, on the question that prompted these stories and then the posture of these three main characters in the final scene of this extended parable. Now, don't worry, I'm not just beginning my sermon. Some of you are thinking, I've heard this before. He's just now getting to his three points. No, that's not what we're going to do because this is actually uh, it's just some very short, concise observations. Jesus tells this story or these stories, this, this trifecta, in response to the Pharisees' challenge that Jesus is spending too much time with sinners, too much time to be considered an ambassador for God. For them, godly people don't share the table with sinners like this, especially if it might send the message that God is on their side. We certainly don't want them thinking that. But this is a central message in Luke's gospel, that God is on the side of edge people, those that have been pushed to the margins, those that society has lost. You know, going back to Luke 4, this announcement by Jesus, this prophetic announcement, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach the gospel to edge people. The prisoners, the blind, those that have been pushed aside, those that have been cast out, those that are in, in bondage, to set them free. Now, by the time we get to the story of the prodigal in Luke 15, Jesus has already provoked the feelings we experience when we lose something 
and then when we find it. It's a universal experience. It's something ancient people and modern people all share. The pain of losing something and the joy of finding it. Now he goes a step further, and he invites his audience, including these Pharisees who are challenging him, he invites them to, the real, to consider the real experiences of a family, something that every family has dealt with. Every family, whether directly or indirectly, knows the pain that comes with having a child who's a prodigal, having a child that is wasteful, having a child that has no direction, a lost child, the black sheep of the family. It's something he knew his audience could relate to. In fact, Amy Jill Levine, for those of you who don't know her, by the way, she teaches at Vanderbilt. She's an Orthodox Jew who is a New Testament scholar. Yeah. Uh, So... Her perspective is always unique because most Christian writings we read, they are very apologetic to Christianity, like, like in terms of their defense of it. Amy Jill Levine is always a Jewish apologist when she interprets the New Testament. It's very interesting. So for her, she hates the, the direction that Luke take, takes with this. She thinks Luke is totally missing the mark here. Um, but we as Christians receive it as inspired, and we believe Luke has something to say to us. But she does raise an interesting observation. She does raise the observation that this parable, take it out of context, just pull the parable out of context, and you have a story that helps us discuss family dynamics and how the church might envision itself more as a family rather than a community, right? That, that maybe that's the purpose of the parable in some way, is to cause us to think of one another as family, brothers and sisters, and not just neighbors, like in a community. The repentant posture of the son and the loving posture of the father are clear and explicit in this text. But what is not so clear is what is going on with this older brother. Remember, it's the third person in the story that's the punchline. The parable is not so much about the prodigal for these Pharisees. You see, Pharisees already believed God was a merciful and loving God. Believe it or not, that was not outside the purview of their theology. They understood Yahweh to be a God of mercy and of love. It also would not be out of their purview to think about the power of repentance. In fact, Amy Jill Levine talks about this. She talks about how Christians often imagine that Jews didn't want sinners around them. And that's not exactly the truth. Within the synagogue, more so than the temple complex, but within the synagogue, synagogues openly welcomed sinners because they wanted them to repent and to return to Yahweh in faithful covenant. Right. So these things would not have been new to the Pharisees. It's this third person that Jesus is using to catch their attention. Men must repent was not new to them. God being merciful was not new to them. But perhaps what they had not paid enough attention to in their work for the Lord was their own posture towards those whom God was most merciful. 
maybe they were a little more like the indignant Jonah who lamented, if you remember, when God forgave the Ninevites. Maybe they were more like him than they wanted to admit. Pay attention to the words exchanged as the father and the older brother have this conversation outside of the home. The brother says, this son of yours. But the father, in his response to the older brother, says, this brother of yours. You see, there's a tendency in religious orders to spend a whole lot of time deciding who's in and who's out, who's worthy and who's not, who can be forgiven and who can't, or who is forgiven and who isn't. But what happens when we take that posture, when that is the way we begin to view one another as if they are either one of us or not one of us, whether they are in or out, whether they are forgiven or not, is that we lose our human connection to one another. You see, it's easy to talk about someone who's a condemned, filthy sinner when they don't live in your home or eat at your table. It's a lot harder when they are your child, your brother, or your sister. When I was growing up in church, of course, this is years ago before perspectives had changed on so many things. I remembered an evangelist preaching a fiery sermon. I think I might have shared this before. But in this sermon, he stopped and he shared a really vulnerable moment. And he talked about how he was at a, at a meeting, at a, a service one time. And this preacher was going on and on about the gays in San Francisco. And this preacher he was listening to made this statement, said, I just wish we could line all the gays up in San Francisco and mow them down with a machine gun. This evangelist happened to have a gay son. He went up to the preacher after that fiery sermon, handed him a small picture of his son, and said, when you get to San Francisco and you line them all up before you kill them, tell this one that I love him, that daddy loves him. You see, it's easy to talk about those people when those people aren't your brother. They're just somebody else's son. But Jesus says the Father sees them and has now called you to see them, not as other, but as brother. Now, let's be honest. The older brother has a point, right? Like he has a reason to be ticked off. I mean, this is, he's been living there, he's been working, he ain't had a party. I'd be a little upset too. He's got a reason to be upset. You see, he's like the 99 sheep who were left so that the one could be found. He's all the other coins that, by the way, didn't lose their value just because one was lost. They were still worth what they were worth, but the owner didn't care about those. The owner spent her time looking for the one that was lost. But in Luke's narrative here, God is not partying over the 99 he has in the fold or the coins he has in his pocket. No. God throws a party with the angels when lost people are found. 
That's what brings joy to God the Father. And lost people aren't just those doing things and living lives outside of God's will. You know, growing up, that's what I always thought. We're here to win the lost. And that was always the, the sinners, the people who were not doing God's will. But it goes deeper than that. When you read the fullness of Luke's narrative here, when you go back to that call that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach the gospel to the prisoner and, and, and those in bondage and the blind, those who would have been on welfare, the blind, those who could not make a living for themselves. That lost people are all those people that society has moved on and forgotten. Those that are lost. Those that are not known to us. Those who are other. Not just the sinner, but the homeless. The prisoner. The single parent for those of us who are married and never think about what life must be like for them. The elderly who are no longer in the picture of our lives and are just forgotten. Or the hospice patient who doesn't have enough living left, we might think, to warrant our time. You see, God in this story is less concerned with what religious people think about who he chooses to eat with and spend time with. And he is more concerned with those people that he's eating and spending time with knowing that God sees them and that God has found them. Right where they are, God has ran to them. God has ran to Zacchaeus' home. God has ran to the home of the sinner and met them right where they are at. He has ran to them like a good father. He has ran to them like a shepherd going after a lost sheep. He has ran to them like a woman sweeping for her lost coin and like a loving father running to his lost son. Now, we are not told how the older brother responds in this story. Anybody remember those choose-your-own-adventure novels back in the 80s? Yeah. That's how this story kind of works. It's like a choose-your-own-adventure novel. The Pharisees now have a choice to make, and they will determine the conclusion of this story. They will determine how the older brother responds. And I think it's fair to say that so will the church. That the church will determine how this story ends. How do we respond to the call to be our brother's keeper? Not to say, ah, that's not my problem, God. But to say, no. This is my brother. This is my sister. These people are not other they are part of God's good creation. So this morning, as we close our service, we are going to partake of the table if our musicians will come ready in our servers. And this is a great setup <laughs> for Eucharist. Because we are invited this morning to come and eat at Jesus' table. The Lord has ran to us. The Lord has come to us. And He has invited us to eat. 
This morning when we read the Psalms, in fact, I kind of get this Missy sermon last week. By the way, wasn't it great last week, Missy's message? It was fantastic. These Psalms do trigger me sometimes that we read in the morning. And this one this morning was, you know, it just had these overtones of if you're good enough, if you've repented enough, God will sing songs of deliverance over you. Well, that's why I'm so thankful that we are New Testament believers and we have the table of the Lord. Because what I want to tell you this morning is this. You may have come here today and you may feel like that prodigal. God, just let me be a slave and I'll be okay. God, just let me have a little leftover bread and I'll be all right. But what I want to tell you is at the table, you are going to meet a God of extravagant love who not only ran to us but died for us, allowed His body to be broken and His blood to be shed so that we might be forgiven, so that we might have eternal, the eternal kind of life. So this morning as you come, you may come feeling worthless and unworthy, but I want you to know that at this table, God runs to us. He runs to us. And He is present. And He invites us to partake, not just with Him, but of Him. Amen? Will you stand with me and we'll read the invitation together. This is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love Him and those who want to love Him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed. Come. Because it's the Lord who invites you, and it is His will that those who want Him should meet Him here. As you come this morning, there'll be prayer partners on either side of the front. If you need prayer for anything, you're welcome to come. All are welcome to partake of communion this morning. Prodigal or elder son, you're called this morning to receive communion. So, come. Thank you again for joining us. We invite you to send your requests and stories to info at renovatuschurch.com and give by visiting our website, renovatuschurch.com. As we close every service at Renovatus, would you join me in praying the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.